Now, depending on where you are in the country, the topography, distance from the sea, uh, prevailing winds and so forth, there's a whole bunch of things there that you need to take into account, which fortunately we do have the HERA corrosion maps that you can use. That will then tell you where to you. Kiora, I'm Troy, here as CEO and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Kiaura, I am Kawa, Hera's manager, Structural Systems. Today, we are talking with Ryder Sarov, technical principal with WSP in New Zealand. Ryder has extensive experience in corrosion engineering and asset integrity management of structural steel and other metallic structures. He has been involved in development of Hera weathering steel design guideline for both New Zealand and Australia. We will talk about structural weathering steel performance. For anyone um, who isn't aware, can you tell us uh, what weathering steel is? Yep, so uh, weathering steel, um, or to use a technical term, structural steel with improved atmospheric corrosion resistance, um, it is a high strength, low alloy steel. So that in the suitable environment, it may be left without any protective coating on it because it forms a really well-adhering protective rust layer, uh, also known as a patina, um, which minimizes further corrosion. So what happened is that, that rust patina layer formed on the surface, um, it becomes thicker and harder over time, and it impedes or stops the amount of oxygen and moisture reacting with the steel substrate. So you actually, it doesn't stop corrosion, but it has a really reduced corrosion rate over time. Um, chemically, what we're talking about, the alloying of weathering steel um, really is only 2% of this total steel makeup um, with specific alloy percentages of copper, chromium, silicon, nickel, and in some cases, phosphorus. Um, historically, commonly known as core 10, a lot of people call it core 10. Um, which is out of Europe and the States, um, but also uh, Blue Scope Australia produces it and calls it red core. And um, in the Hera weathering steel gardens that we have, uh, we call it conventional weathering steel. Um, weathering steel has been around since uh, the 1930s. It was originally designed as coal hoppers um, because they had a harder abrasion resistance than mass steel. And then they found out, hold on, this all got, it's got all these great properties as well. Um, but over the last 20, 20, 30 years, uh, coastal grades of weathering steel with nickel, a higher nickel added weathering steel, for example, has also been produced by Nippon, Nippon steel. So there are different types of weathering steel depending on where you want to use them. Great. So um, you know that um, one of the problems of, uh, you know, uh, um, materials or structural elements is time-dependent performance um, due to corrosion. So I, I think based on 
your uh, description and what you are saying about withering steel, probably we can expect it pretty like stable or at least very um, expected um, response over lifetime. Apart from this, what are the benefits of withering steel? Um, well, the main benefit is really to reduce maintenance over its life compared to, I guess you can say, a conventional painted steel uh, a bridge or a structure. So you have, it will probably cost a little bit more upfront compared to yeah. if you're comparing weathering steel with the cost of an unpainted carbon steel. Yeah. But when you take the cost of the paint as well, uh, compared to the weathering steel together, um, it could be comparable or maybe even slightly higher upfront. But it's that whole of life total um, long-term cost benefits. The other benefits of that, uh, because you don't have to maintain a coating anymore, the patina yeah. itself protects itself. So that's that's yeah. one benefit. Yeah. Um, other benefit is it got um, environmental and safety benefits, again, related to not requiring the need to future maintenance and applying coatings and so forth. Um, health and safety, in the sense, again, you're not having people out on site um, trying to do their work. So really it's all related to that maintenance side of things. And of course, um, uh, beauty in the eye of the beholder, it looks pretty. Um, yeah. Rusty red, what's wrong with that? But appreciate it may not be everybody's cup of tea. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, what are the main applications of weathering steel? Um, so like I said, originally with design as uh, coal um, hoppers, on, on railroads, um, it's actually also used on uh, container, on containers, shipping containers are actually made out of weathering steel, but they are painted. Yeah. Um, but typically for us structurally, we've been using it as for bridges. Um, so it's a great material for, for, for bridges, but also it's also been used uh, for facades. Again, architects love it because it give you that, that organic change over time, the colors change, it's got, got a nice story as it develops the patina over time. But from a structural point of view, a bridge is really ideal for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are some actually buildings in CBDs which they used uh, weathering steel for facade or envelope of the building. Yep, yep, that's right. Uh, and in, on K Road in Auckland, we have the Iron Bank building, which was fully clad with weathering steel. That's another nice example almost yep. of an architectural feature. Yeah, yeah, cool. Where should weathering steel be used? Oh, that's quite a big topic by itself, um, which, which fortunately is not that difficult. I mean, we, we have provided the guidance for engineers to, to determine and be aware of where to use it in the right place. The main thing, you, again, let's start with what we call conventional weathering steel, the core 10, the red core. Um, <clears throat> not, not, not near the sea. Don't use that near the sea. It doesn't like it. The patina won't form. It will just continue to corrode like like normal unpainted steel. So what we say, um, if the in the environment, as in the macro environment of the structure, take into account the micro, i.e. micro environment, i.e. the environment of a sheltered, non-painted steel surface, which is um, not rain-washed, those are considered to be the worst type of surface uh, environment for the steel. Um, for those anywhere that is a C3 medium, 
uh, so basically category corrosivity category C3, which is medium corrosion um, and less. You could use weathering steel. Now, depending on where you are in the country, the topography, distance from the sea, uh, prevailing winds and so forth, there's a whole bunch of things there that you need to take into account, which fortunately we do have the HERA corrosion maps that you can use that will then tell you where to use it. So that could range from two to five kilometers from the sea on the east coast of the country, possibly could be um, 15 to 20 kilometers, let's say on the west coast or of New Zealand or of the South Island or let's say in Wellington, because that's mainly to do with the prevailing wind blowing the source further in. So it is very specific on where you are in the country, but as yep. long as have using those here at corrosion maps, you can then dictate, well, I can use it here as long as my corrosivity overall is less than C3. Yeah. If you are in a C4 or C5, and our C5 is your very high corrosion rate, which is typically uh, within um, 100 or 500 meters from the sea, depending on the coast, which coast you are on, of course. Yeah. In the past, we used to say, do not use weathering steel. Yeah. But um, with the introduction of the coastal graves, of the nickel added coastal graves of weathering steel in New Zealand now, we do have this option. So again, it's selecting the right material for the environment to get the maximum potential out of it. It's very important. Oh, that that's very important actually. It means that um, you know you have a different weathering still for different um, corrosive zone, yep. and um, that's that 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 would be great. Uh, let's discuss in more details about engineering aspects or characteristics of weathering steel. From the structural design point of view, is there a difference between the design of weathering steel compared to carbon steel? Yeah, so the main difference that designers need to take into account is the corrosion allowance. So like we said, the patina is what protects the weathering steel and the patina grows over time. So on a hundred year design life of a structure or for conventional weathering steel, we say you should allow for one and a half millimeters per surface of the steel, of your cross section. Um, that's your corrosion allowance. That's where the patina is going to be growing. So when you design um, on paper your yeah. bridge, you, you basically subtract that surface area, that area from your total cross-sectional area of your I-beam, for example. Um, what that means is you're probably more than likely having to go to the next size up of a plate size compared to a conventional painted steel. That's probably the main difference from a design point of view. Um, from mechanically, it's the same. Grade 350 yield is available and possibly even higher with, with some of the, um, the steels available. Um, fatigue is, very, is the same. There are some change different consideration you need to allow from, from a welding fabrication point of view, but that's, 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 we'll talk about that when we get to that point. Yeah. But yeah, from a, from a design point of view, <clears throat> you design it, just allow, take that corrosion allowance into account. Yeah. You're, you're pretty much good to go, but then you have to be very careful how you specify the fabrication um, and, and and welding and all that, which is also given in uh, AS and the 1554 and 5131. So the gas is all there. Yeah. It's just being aware what to select and use at the right time. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I think you answered the part of uh, the next question, but um, just let me double check with you. Is there anything that structural engineers should be particularly aware of when designing with weathering steel? No, I've already answered that, so yeah. you can take that yeah. bit out. Okay, cool. Uh, is there a difference in uh, structural detailing and connections for weathering steel versus carbon steel? Yep, um, so detailing is relatively the same. It's all the same principles of eliminating water traps. You don't want water ponding, um, whether it's the painted steel, uh, carbon steel or weathering steel water uh, uh, is not good. So try to design your structure to shed water off the bridge. Don't yeah. have any water traps and so forth. That's just good debt, just, just good general detailing. Um, leaky joints is a problem, again, water. So leaky joints is a problem regardless of what type of, so they're very, very similar. Um, I guess the main differences with the connections is, is with, with, with a painted carbon steel bridge, we typically paint the fang surfaces, let's say, before at the connection for your splice or your bolter splice. And as long in that particular case, you use a certified uh, coating for a specific slip factor um, and you apply it correctly, the right thickness and so forth, then that is fine. While with weathering steel, you can actually follow the old fashioned, I guess you can say traditional way of abrasive blasting the surface of the fang surfaces. And as long as you bolt up the connection um, with before you have excessive rust forming, then connect from a, from a supply connection point of view, it is fine. So that's why we also recommend to people, look, you blast it, when you're fabricating it, you give it a post-fabrication clean, washing, whatever, get the patina kick started. But when you're putting the thing together, just double check and you may have to give it a slight sweep to remove any loose rust so you have a nice, relatively clean surface so you can bolt it all up. So there is, yeah, those are, I guess, the main differences. It's just yeah. making sure before you bolt everything up, you have your nice, clean surface um, so you're not introducing a future potential problem later on. Yeah, so based on the issue you explained um, regarding the leaky connection, it it, it it seems that weathering steel is pretty ideal for integral bridges. Um, I will, integral bridges, I would say regardless of, yeah, no, that's a good point. So regardless of the type of steel, if you're going to bury it in concrete, I will still paint weathering steel. Yeah. Um, at that particular point, yeah. um, likely like let's say uh, well, 350 microns of an unconductive epoxy coating. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So, so that's that's a common detail. Another common detail. So anywhere you have joints, it's all about keeping water out. And um, yeah, that's a cool. good point. Yeah, great. Um, how do you assess weathering steel's performance in New Zealand and worldwide in terms of structural performance and durability? Um, yeah, so New Zealand is relatively new in the use of weathering steel in road bridges. So the first yeah. one was in 2005, State Highway 1, Mercer to Long Swamp off-ramp. Um, that's actually a bridge that I commonly inspect every few years just to see how it's performing. That was the yeah. first one we've had. but over the last 15 years, I believe we have now over 10, 15 bridges, both road and rail. Um, yeah. Kiwi Rail has been quite a good adopter of weathering steel. Yeah. Um, mainly in the North Island, 
but over yeah. the last few years, there's been now a number of examples in the South Island, and I'm aware of a number of new bridges being designed in Weathering Seal at the moment. Um, from a durability point of view, the, the main observation we've had over the years is the rate of the patina formation. Um, overseas examples talk about within two years, you may have a patina fully formed. While in New Zealand, we have found that could be it could take between eight to 16 years um, to fully form. Again, it depends on where it's been used, the exposure to the wind, the wetting and drying cycles and so forth. Um, having said that, a couple of years ago, we did an inspection of a rail bridge and the patina had a beautiful formation yeah. after only two, three years. Uh, again, it was mainly of that little environment that was in where they had a um, <clears throat> fog every morning during winter they have fog around 10 o'clock or so in the morning the fog goes away and the sun is out so they had that regular wetting and drying cycle yeah more commonly occurring in that particular location than other parts of the country but overall yeah. we said on average you're looking at eight years to 16. while yeah. over yeah so overseas examples um so weathering steel bridges i think have been now going on within the last 55 years in north america europe and japan most north american bridges are now built in weathering steel structurally they're all performed the same as long as you design it right yeah this should be fine um the main issue we're seeing is again stuff related to leaky joints uh in the other parts of the world they use uh the icing salts on their roads yeah and if you have a leaky joint that's really really bad um, for any steel bridge um, yeah yeah so so fortunately in New Zealand we don't have we don't use the icing sauce that's not much of a problem so and uh, Australia is a relative newcomer to the use of yeah. weathering steel um, yeah. I believe you have a handful in the last five years but yeah maybe they'll have more of them soon yeah no that's great um, how do you assess weathering steel in terms of sustainability and carbon emissions oh that's a, a thorny topic you've raised carbon <laughs> emissions um i would say longevity that's the main difference longevity of the structure with minimal maintenance so yeah. like we said is how do i say this from a carbon point of view um I appreciate different people got different views about steel at the moment and it's inherent uh, a high carbon uh, locked in carbon that it got but my view is as long as we design bridges for a hundred years and if you design in detail and built a, a weathering steel bridge it, it is more than likely and the patina form correctly and everything's fine it is more than likely the bridge will last longer than 100 years uh, and there's no reason why if it's well maintained and what i mean by that as in like you know regular washing inspections and so forth it shouldn't last 150 or 200 years so from a carbon point of view my view is if you have something that you've built which should have a longer life of a couple of you know 100 plus years you've locked in that carbon, you've, you've maximized its use for as long as possible. Compared to, uh, again, this is the controversial statement I'm gonna make, uh, timber. Um, there's a lot of discussion at the moment on whether timber is the best way to go. But the problem with timber is it probably will, over a hundred years, you may have to replace that structure twice. 
So whatever carbon you may have saved initially, you may have thought, oh, I'm doing the right thing. I'm building out of timber. But in 50 years time, if you have to demolish and rebuild that bridge, what are the total carbon emitted during that period compared to a steel structure? Exactly. So I appreciate it's, it's a controversial statement apparently these days, and we probably need to do a little bit more research on this, but that's in my view, why design a short term structure while yes, it may cost us more in carbon point of view, but you're locking it and you're getting something that could last 100 or 200 years. It's that long-term thinking. We need to start thinking really about the whole of life performance of a structure, not just in cost point of view, but carbon, but yeah, longevity. Great. Um, let's talk about economical aspects of weathering steel. How um, ha have you done any cost comparison between weathering steel and carbon steel for real projects in New Zealand? Yep, yep. So, so we we typically we recommend doing that regardless um, whether you're painting uh, because there's yeah different types of paint systems, for example, you need to consider. Um, but the same thing chuck into weathering steel as well. So typically. When you do a whole of life cost analysis between different types of material options and painted bridges and so forth, weathering steel on average we have found to be lower costs from a whole of life point of view by up to 30%, which is great. Um, <clears throat> and this is comparing it against a painted, like I said before, you cannot compare the costs of an unpainted steel, you know, carbon steel with weathering steel because unpainted carbon steel is always cheaper. But once you take into account the cost of the paint system, and not only the initial cost of the paint system, but as future maintenance in 40 years time, whatever, you will find that the cost of weathering steel is cheaper. Now, there are, there's, there are certain requirements, of course, in sync. So if, if the, the requirement is for a painted colored bridge, well, that autom automatically excludes weathering steel, then that doesn't become part of the conversation. Then the question is, do you want gray or, or a color? That's the, then that's another whole of life costing ex example there. Um, <clears throat> but the other thing is we also need to account is, of course, at the end of the day, the cost of the material itself, because that is based on supply and demand, and sometimes and sometimes even the, the alloys that goes into the weathering, especially if you're using the nickel added. If the price of nickel is high, then that will boost the price of weathering steel and at that particular time you find oh there may that 30 percent difference may be smaller but that's that's the whole point of doing a whole of life cost analysis pretty much on every of the structure and picking the right type of solution at the time but overall we found it's usually around the 30 percent cost difference uh on for, for weathering steel yeah uh, what is the benefit of weathering steel structural elements for bridges compared to reinforced concrete elements? Oh, you're really pushing the boundaries on being controversial <laughs> today. Okay, so um, this is not just so, so before we talk about weathering steel specifically, we could really talk about the benefits of it from a, from a maintenance point of view. For any steel bridge, not just weathering steel, for any steel bridge. The main benefit of steel is this higher strength to weight ratio. That's uh, common knowledge. So what that means is we can go longer spans 
we can go you know longer span by, uh, and 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 having a lower um, weight. Now the benefit of that is really is twofold. A you by going longer spans, you can reduce your substructure requirements. You can knock off a pier, for example, because you're going longer. But also from a seismic point of view, you would have a relatively lower mass, seismic mass, so it's a lighter bridge. So by having a lighter bridge, your basically your foundation will get smaller. Um, you can knock off a pier. Um, if you're looking at putting a bridge over a river, for example, you can cross that whole bridge in one hit. You can have a hundred meter span of structure, whether it's a box girder, I-beams, if you're going to push the boundary or an arch bridge. Now, you've so if you compare the cost of the superstructure, concrete to steel, from my experience, if you just look at the superstructure itself, concrete is typically cheaper or could be similar, but usually concrete is cheaper. What you need to do is take into account the substructure costs because if you like I said, if you have a river and you've knocked that pier off from the need to put a pier in the river, well, that's a significant cost saving there, not only from a cost point of view, but also from an environmental point of view, because you're not then introducing something into the river that may affect its flow. You, you've introduced scour issues in the future, um, and like I said, the environment as well. So. That's where steel overall really comes into play. So don't just look at the, sub, sub, the superstructure only, the whole structure and the substructure. And like I said, it's light to weight, therefore your foundation could be smaller compared to a concrete bridge. Um, and uh, so that's, that's one side of the, yeah, that's, that's one of the benefits of it. But then again, I remember an example quite a few years ago and in, in when they were building the tapo um, arterial Pathway. Um, that's what it was called at the time. There was this a bridge that you go over when you. Um, uh, it's not the arch bridge, but it's the one earlier over the geothermal field. I think it's called the Contact Energy Bridge on State Highway One. That is a 440 meter multi-span ladder deck bridge. It's one of the first. It was definitely the longest ladder deck bridge. Um, in New Zealand at the moment, multi-span bridge. And at the time, I remember the designer, um, I was talking to him and he said, well, originally we were planning to simply move earth and build this big embankment and get to the arch bridge and away we go. But when they did the costing of just moving that much earth over, over you know, 440 meters worth of uh, length of earth to move, a massive volume over a geothermal field, actually found it was cheaper just to build a bridge. Um, hence why we now have the Contact Energy Bridge, um, which is also, as I recall, the biggest um, aluminium metal spray job in the Southern Hemisphere at the time, over 10,000 square meters. So a lot of deck bridges, yeah. So again, that's steel in general. But again, if you combine the benefit of a steel structures with weathering steel, you get the additional cost savings. Yeah. Great. Uh, you actually um, uh, answer, yeah, answer <laughs> my next question. So I just skip to the uh, next one. Um, I, I just move to the next yep. uh, question. Um, does weathering still uh, need um, specific maintenance? Oh, like like any other bridge. Um, if you 
detail it and build it correctly. You've addressed your, you know, leaky joints, uh, all these type of things. Like any other bridge, I would say the only maintenance you need is regular washing. Um, it's just good housekeeping. Um, I think someone says, um, you wash your car, why don't you wash your house? It's the same principle. Um, you just keep your bridges relatively clean. They'll they'll take care of you. That's probably it, really. Just take care of it. Keep it clean. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, is uh, rehabilitation of weathering steel bridges cost effective? So, in theory, if you again detail, design, detail, and build the weathering steel bridge correctly, you don't need to rehabilitate it. The only need. The only reason you need to do something to it is if you have a change of service, if you need a bigger bridge, wider bridge, more loads, and the bridge can't take it. So it's a performance point of view. You may have to do something to it. But if 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 that's all these factors are okay, other than washing it, you, you don't have to do much to it. Um, again, it's very similar to a uh, painted steel bridge. So. Kia ora, it is Greg Buckley, Innovation and Transformation Architect at HERA here again. Today's conversation reminds me of Charles Darwin's quote, in the long history of humankind and animal kind too, those that learn to collaborate and improvise most effectively have prevailed. Just a nice reminder that collaboration is the name of the game and if you or your organization are looking to collaborate, are looking to enter the world of open and collaborative innovation, get in touch with me. Uh, my details will be in the show notes. Kia ora. it's Kawa again. We discussed about various aspects of structural weathering steel, including durability, structural performance, economy, and sustainability. Hera published weathering steel design guidelines for New Zealand and Australia. Hera and ASI are, are pleased to present a joint webinar to view on 20 and 21st of October and a live question and answer on 22nd of October to share the latest information on the design, fabrication, construction, in service performance and maintenance of the weathering steel bridges. If you like to know more about this topic or have a question, then please get in touch with myself. My details are in the show notes.